certainly grow up in Jamestown, North Carolina. I never imagined I'd be doing this. I never, certainly never imagined I'd be partnered with CEOs of the world's largest companies. I never imagined that we would have 55 companies that we've invested in and some of the most successful startups and these amazing founders that I get to work with. That's the privilege. Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. I'm your host, Mark Hubbard. This season, we're exploring the Atlanta startup and funding market, and today we talk to one of its key contributors. That voice you just heard was Blake Patton, founding managing partner of early stage investment firm TechSquare Ventures. And in addition to starting one of the first institutionally focused early stage funds in town, Blake also was on the founding team for Engage, a fund and program designed to connect startups to the many massive corporations headquartered in the Southeast. So listen in and learn the history of how he got to where he is and where he thinks the market's headed. Thanks so much. As always, please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please visit pixelrecess.com to learn more about our product design and development and venture studio to help you de-risk and accelerate your growth. Now enjoy this conversation with Blake. I'm Blake Patton, managing partner of TechSquare Ventures. We're an early stage venture firm based here in Atlanta, an enterprise and marketplace technology companies. So where are you from? Are you from here? I, I don't actually know that at all. I grew up in Jamestown, North Carolina, and first came to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech. Actually came here on a swimming scholarship. On a swimming scholarship? Yeah. That means you like swam in high school and stuff? I did. That was my sport growing up. Swam competitively and what was AAU and now USS swimming and came down to tech and Join the swim team here. Was there ever a desire for Olympics or to try to do a big push? Well, certainly a desire. Uh, <laughs> a long way from the from the talent level for that. I was competitive at a state level and, and certainly at the collegiate level, but only the top one or two folks in each event make the Olympics. There was no danger of that for me. Swimmers are like, that's the those are the most fit people. That's crazy hard. By the time you get to high school, you're practicing twice a day before and after school. And then, you know, but what's a pra- what does a practice mean? It's a combination of dry land. So weights and other dry land exercises, running and that kind of thing. And then in the water, it was probably an hour and a half practices in the morning and two, two and a half in the afternoon. Wow. So is, was that your personal drive or does that kind of thing come from your family? That's a great question. Both my parents were incredibly hard workers. My mom, she was my first introduction to entrepreneurship. She and her friends started a a quilt shop. Uh, my dad was a super hard worker. But swimming is one of those things. It just takes hours and hours of practice to be competitive. And once you get into it, if you keep going, that's the natural evolution. It, it gave me a, a really tight friend group, maybe a different friend group than I would have had in my neighborhood. And that that friend group was all college was assumed and all of those things. And so I think swimming impacted me in a lot of ways. And even once I got to Georgia Tech, it was the discipline around that made you a better student. You were pretty focused on getting your work done so you could get some sleep. Yeah. And, and same thing, the friends I made through swimming continue to be some of my closest friends to the state. So why Georgia Tech? What were you thinking you were going to do? I knew I was good at math and science, and uh, I thought I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And I oh, wow. assumed that meant I'd go to school for a few years and build rocket ships. But uh, right, on a recruiting trip to Tech, they took me in the wind tunnel. So I was fascinated by it. But once I got here, just got exposed to so many different things. And for a long time, had a hard time picking a major, wound up in industrial engineering. So my degree is in industrial and systems engineering. What was the idea? What was the grand plan? Were you going to move away? What was the job supposed to be? I'm guessing you can relate to this, but this was pre-internet. So I wasn't maybe as ambitious as young people today. So the thought really was, can I get a job and feed myself? Yeah. But at that time, the big thing in the business world and business community was re-engineering. So a lot of people were hiring engineers across all sorts of industries. 
And so when I was at Tech, I was one of the first students that got invited to be on what's now the, the Georgia Tech Advisory Board, the, the President's Advisory Board. So the first, for the first time, they put students on this board. So this is a board full of alumni and luminaries, people like Andrew Young and CEOs of all these different companies. And I just got exposed to this big thinking at a really critical age. I saw these amazing leaders and that inspired me. I wanted to be one of those leaders. But one of those leaders on that board was Al West, the CEO of SEI, which is a asset management company. And at the time, they were also one of the largest back office trust accounting system providers for banks. He gave me an opportunity at SEI and I was excited about that. And so my first job out of school was in the IT group at, at SEI. And then eventually I actually moved over to the asset management side. And it was there that I started to have my first thoughts of entrepreneurship. By this time, the internet was taking off. Mm-hmm. And I would go home at night and play around on that as a programmer. And I saw right away that I was able to access the same information on my dial-up modem that we were on the Bloomberg terminals at work. And it just, the light bulb just went off for me. I knew this is going to change how we work and live. And I wanted to be part of it. A, a friend of mine that was graduating after me was starting a company based on some work, project work he had mm-hmm. done at Georgia Tech. And so teamed up with him and jumped out and we built what was really a multimedia services company that was right in the middle of the transition to the internet and just right place, right time. This was before all the consulting companies and all that were doing it. Yeah. That was my launch into the tech industry. We had these amazing clients and we were doing work for everybody from SunTrust to Apple to Pricewaterhouse and just had a blast. And Bert Ellis here in town had started IXL and others like uh, at the time, US Web, which became March 1st, and others started knocking on our door to acquire us. And so we sold the company to IXL. I think we were their second acquisition. They were just a couple of million in revenue. They were really a startup themselves and uh, and went on eventually to become EVP of IXL. And that story, we wound up taking that company public. And so I was definitely the, the stereotype dot-com kid. I was in over my head by age yeah. You know, 29, officer in a public traded company, but it was just an amazing time. We really knew that what we were working on was changing how business was done. And it was just a really fun, transformative time. Did it feel like a startup as you think of startups now? Did it feel like what you see other people going through at the time? Absolutely. I still had a little bit of a unique beginning because Bird had sold his prior company and there was this little multimedia group that didn't go with it. And that's what IXL started out of. So IXL had a little bit of an advantage and then it started with a, uh, a base of capital. We went on to be a venture and private equity backed. And so we went through all those same phases, but in terms of being a startup, I think in many ways, IXL was almost a stereotypical startup. We grew ridiculously fast and Bert was a really fun leader to work with because he just gave us so much leeway and so much room to grow. So it was a lot like today, and, and especially when you think about how heated the entrepreneurial community yeah. is and, the, and all the activity you see now, that's certainly what it felt like at that time. I think the big difference, though, was what made that period unique and special was everything we were doing, everything everybody was doing was, was being done for the first time. The Internet was so new. And we couldn't have possibly imagined all the things we're doing today. It was very basic, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't just building websites for companies, right? These companies had to figure out what they were going to do with it. I remember we had a client that was a large brand you would recognize, shoe manufacturer. And I remember sitting in the room and everybody's excited about the website and and the e-commerce aspect of it. And we said, look, if you ever shipped one pair of shoes to anybody and the room just went silent and we were like, that's what we need to talk about. What happens after they click buy, right? But everything was hard and everything was custom. There weren't the coding frameworks there are today. There weren't all the solutions that existed for 
simple things like transacting. It was definitely the go-go days. Much like today, we somewhat defy gravity and, and everyone was speculating, what does this mean? Yeah. Um, I think what's different though, is at that time, there really was this initial massive void to fill. And so in addition to all the other things that led up to the dot-com crash, part of it was this initial just overwhelming demand. So why did you have that in you? Why did you have the ability to do, you weren't trained for that. Like you trained to get a job and your expectation was you're going to go have a job. Why did you have in you the ability to do all of the stressful stuff it took to make all of that happen, be completely out of your depth and yet function? Yeah. You know what? I think from the moment I set foot on Georgia Tech's campus, I was out of my depth. My parents were amazing and background was amazing. My, My father was career military, then worked for the state of North Carolina as a tax auditor. So I didn't really grow up thinking about business and, and, and really solving big problems. I think what I got instilled in me was a phenomenal work ethic. So when I got to Georgia Tech, there was just a sense of you can do anything. And I was surrounded by all these people, this idea of building things. And, and I think I just love that. And I think it was maybe freeing to not have outsized ambition and be in a hurry to make money or have a certain title or have already predetermined a career path. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the drive, there's no doubt swimming. Swimming is a sport that just takes unbelievable hours and hours of practice. And then when it comes time to compete, you've got your 30 seconds to however many minutes and the results are the results. And so I think I was always competitive. Uh, I think I always liked the scoreboard, but mostly I, I just wasn't constrained. I just, I didn't really know any better that it was not rational. Yeah, maybe the most key thing to any kind of entrepreneurship is, is not knowing what what you don't know. Not knowing that what you're about to do isn't possible. And you're going to go try to do it anyway. Walk me through how you go from that time. So then you're a publicly traded company. You come out of that at some point. At what point do you decide, okay, I'm going to start investing in other people and in other companies and not just my own thing? One of the, one of the things I tell students today, and when people ask me for career advice, I talk about those IXL years and say, look, by the time I was EVP of IXL, I didn't get that role because they looked across the world and said, who's the best qualified person. I got that role because we just grew so fast. And and the talent had to come from within. And so you get all these opportunities in these high growth environments. And and by the time I had gotten out of IXL, I think I viewed myself as a little bit of that that lieutenant, that operator. When people knew what hill they wanted to take, I was the guy they said, hey, go take that hill. And so I thought of myself as an operator. I thought of myself as someone who built businesses. I didn't think of myself as the visionary, Mm -hmm. you know, founder type. I just felt like I was really good at building and growing things. As part of that IXL journey, we had started a little company inside IXL, IXL had a ventures group and building what today you would call a content management system. And so built a company around that and we sold it. And that was still as part of the IXL umbrella. And then after IXL, I got hired as a CEO of another, who really went on to run two different venture back companies. One uh, in the prepaid card space, total technology ventures here in town had already invested in the company. They were looking for somebody to come in and run that company. And then the same venture firm, after we exited that, they had another company that they introduced me to. And I went on to run that SaaS wealth management software company. And after we sold that, I was on the Alumni Association Board of Trustees at Georgia Tech and I had been stayed really active at tech. And they connected me with ATDC, the startup incubator at Georgia Tech. And originally to say, hey, you appear to be unemployed now. Will you come hang out down here as an EIR and help entrepreneurs? So I did that. And while I was doing that, the woman that was running it left and they asked me to chair the search committee to help find somebody. And so I wound up the interim general manager of ATDC. And I just love it. It was perfect time too. This was kind of 2010, 2012 timeframe post the Great Recession. I just had so much fun. There were all these amazing entrepreneurs building things in different industries. 
It turned out that my network and my background and my experiences were helpful. And if you think about the companies that were there at the time, it's all the companies that we're all now super excited about. So it was the sales lofts and the Mm -hmm. green lights and the patient coach. They were in the infancy there. I was just surrounded by all these amazing entrepreneurs. And and so along the way, I still had the competitive part of me and started thinking about, hey, I don't want to run the the accelerator forever, but I really like this. What what would that, what, what does this look like? And I started talking to a few folks. I saw all this momentum in the Southeast and mm-hmm. saw how hard it was for these companies to raise money and decided to move over to the investment side. So it wasn't, this wasn't like a long-term career goal. I had thought about it earlier in my career and kind of dabbled in some angel investing, but right. that, that was really what led me to this. So I didn't know I wanted to do this till my forties. Right. So it was not a drive to be a VC. You didn't see that world and engineer your career so that you'd end up with the opportunity to end up there. You backed your way in. Yeah. Back my way in. And once I started thinking about it, I talked to a few folks in town and got a range of responses from don't do it. There's sure. no way you're right. not going to be able to do it. But a couple people, Charlie Paparelli was one of them. He said, Hey, you'd be great at that. I learned quickly that uh, it was very difficult to find a position and just join an existing firm. Yes. Um, especially then in Atlanta, yeah, there weren't many firms to join. E- either of the firms. Yeah, either of the firms. And so I decided to, you know, go it on my own. And, and we put together a small, really it was kind of angel fund, but a small pilot fund with a, a couple of investors that I'd met at Georgia Tech at the ATDC. And uh, since I couldn't get a job, I built my own firm and uh, got so much help in the early days. I mentioned Charlie, people like Alan Tatel at Norm Mosley was unbelievably helpful to me. Mm-hmm. He probably is largely responsible for me being here now. When we started raising the money, he kind of pulled me aside and said, by the way, this is what you need to say and do. And this is what it looks like. And uh, and just others in the community. And I realized like that this is not only an opportunity, it's a need. And so the, the entrepreneur in me just loved that. I was feeling, feeling a need. And I joked with my wife at the time. I came home and said, look, this is perfect for me. I can do what the Bible says, love and serve others and help them help their dreams come true. And I can be a greedy capitalist and put points on the scoreboard at the same time and, <laughs> and do well by our family. Let's do this. So yeah, I, I got excited about that and put together this small pilot fund and started investing out of that. And our first investment was a company called Pointivo here in Atlanta. That was about 2014. We launched it. We've invested in 55 companies since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our early stage fund. And we also have our, our engaged partnership, which is an, an innovation and startup accelerator program that we partnered with now 13 yes, we'll companies, originally 10, 10 companies in Georgia tech. We have our fund that is for pure capital appreciation. And then we have our corporate innovation program and mm-hmm. the fund that supports that. So describe the Atlanta market when you started, what was the need that you were fulfilling that you saw? Yeah. So very nascent, but tons of momentum we were at the point of what I would call critical mass. So we finally had a critical mass of entrepreneurs to build these management teams around. We had a critical mass of people building companies. We had a critical mass of angel investors, but there was a big gap uh, between being able to get your first, you know, 50, couple hundred thousand from angels and being attractive to venture firms, which at the time, most of that capital was coming from out of town. So you had to get to a point where you were a couple million in revenue before you were able to attract that capital. So there was just this gap in access to capital. And most of that was filled at the time by all sorts of combination of angels, out of town capital to some degree. And we saw this opportunity to have an institutional seed fund. And at the time, I think the most active investors, we all pretty much had to write a check to get any deal done. We all had yeah. small money and it pretty much took all of us to get a deal done. I don't think people realize how small the market was here. 
in those days. You launched what you just called initially kind of angel, like super angel kind of thing. Yeah. And you would be booked to speak at like regional venture capital conferences because, because that's, that's, right. that's the market here. That's what it was. It was a very new, young, not super institutionally funded market yet. Yeah. And I think even outside Atlanta, people, part of when I start, part of the reason I called Tech Square Ventures was as part of that journey with IXL, I lived in Boston for a while and my office was in Kendall Square. And so in the mid nineties, I saw all these biotech companies move into that area right beside MIT and all of this activity that today we would call corporate innovation activity, merging together with the technology They had a more mature technology system there. And so when I was at ATDC, I would look out the window and I said, this is the same thing happening here that I saw happening in that Kendall Square, Boston market. It wasn't just the startup community. It was all of this innovation activity. It was Georgia Tech starting to care about entrepreneurship. It was Georgia Tech having this vision around, look, the big companies are all focused on innovation now. Let's develop these innovation centers and give them that connectivity. They were focused on commercializing more technology out of, out of the research activity there. And, and then governments, I think, post the Great Recession, there was a, a study from Kauffman Foundation in 2010 that got everybody's attention that in the past 35 years, the bulk of almost all net new job creation came from new companies, not small businesses, new companies. And you were looking at areas at the height of unemployment, but you'd see areas like Austin, Texas and San Jose thriving. And so I think everyone was focused on the potential for entrepreneurship. Everybody felt this momentum building um, and even the out of town investors were watching it, but they didn't yet maybe appreciate was there going to be enough activity here. So I think some of the ability to have a bigger presence maybe than I should, like you say, managing uh, such a small amount of capital was people's recognition and curiosity mm -hmm. about it. it wasn't so much that they cared about me. They wanted to know what was going on in the Southeast. And, and you're right. We were one of the only ones holding ourselves out there institutionally. I think a lot of people build their brands around themselves right. as individuals. And from day one, even though it's, it sounded silly in the beginning when it was just me to call it <laughs> Tech Square Ventures, I right. knew that I wanted to build a platform that would be enduring mm -hmm. and started from day one you know, with the identity of Tech Square Ventures, not the identity of Blake Ventures or Patent Ventures. And, and I think that, that certainly paid off in what we've done. But yeah, what, we were really fortunate, right place, right time. And then the other thing we recognized was early on, having spent most of my career building high-tech companies and being an operator, I had this view that what entrepreneurs needed most other than capital was access to markets and customers. Okay. The way we talked about it was I wanted to build the whole platform around go-to-market. So when people thought of Tech Square Ventures, I wanted to be Hey, they can help you figure out your go-to-market strategy, and then they can help you put it into action faster by getting you connected with early customers and access to markets and partners. I think most firms that were thinking in terms of a platform were thinking in terms of providing services that made things easier for the entrepreneur. Hey, we'll have a recruiter on staff for you. We'll have some marketing help. I always felt we can just give the company 50,000 more dollars and they can go find the, the right one for them, not use us. I just kept saying, all we have to do is help the entrepreneurs. That's it. If we help the entrepreneurs, everything else takes care of itself. So I think when I started investing, I had the same mentality, which was not to try to be an operator, not thinking in terms of winning through deal terms or deal structure, but instead, how do I get in and just help those entrepreneurs succeed? 
One of the knocks on the Atlanta market is if you wanted to build an entrepreneurial ecosystem, like a startup ecosystem, you'd love to have all kinds of the large asset bases to do that off of. So you'd like things like universities, for instance, it'd be great to have a university. Boy, if you could have three or four, that would be incredible. No, Nobody has that. And if everywhere you dug a hole, you could hit fiber. So there's lots of good infrastructure help. If we could throw in the busiest airport in the world, and then maybe down the road, we could have a deep water port. All the things that you could never make happen if you wanted to make happen in an ecosystem. Oh, and one of those things everybody would bring up is, oh, we've got all these Fortune 100s. Now, the frustrating thing is, at least the perception was always that those Fortune 100s do nothing to help support that startup ecosystem here. They're all here, but they're not doing what they do when they're in Boston. They're not deeply engaged in the community here. They're not helping fund stuff. Maybe if you're lucky, they'll help you get in a pilot that'll eventually ruin your company. But other than that, that they don't do anything. So if you're willing, I'd love for you to tell the story of Engage because it's pretty opaque, I think, to most people how any of that happened or why. And I've had people sit in my office across from me that are not you and tell me that they were the person that was responsible for Engage. And so I'd love to, to have on record sort of the story for how it happened and why. I'll dive into the origin of Engage, but just a quick uh, comment on your lead up to that. You're absolutely right. Atlanta has all the key ingredients and not many cities do. And one of those key ingredients are the big companies. But what changed from 15 years ago is some of these other leading tech hubs you talked about where their big companies were engaged. Their big companies were technology companies. So the companies weren't really doing anything different. It's just the, the talent within those companies was the same talent that migrated through the rest of the innovation ecosystem. So people knew each other. There was a connectivity and a trust and activity naturally happened. So in Atlanta, our big companies weren't tech companies. And so that connectivity didn't naturally organically exist. And, and that is really how Engage got, got started. The catalyst behind Engage was uh, Marty Flanagan, the CEO of Invesco. He heard all the same things you were just describing, everyone in town talking about what should be and what could be. But he had this unique vantage point with his peer CEOs in town of hearing them talking about listen, we have to figure out how to be more innovative. We've always thought of uh, innovation as either R&D or M&A activity. Now there's this sort of third category of innovating at the edge of your company and the edge of your industry and outside your four walls. And they all cared about seeing Atlanta be a leading tech hub, not necessarily for altruistic reasons, but more because they knew that's what it was going to take to succeed in their own innovation and, and attract uh, talent. So there were all those conversations going around. He saw that. He used to live in the Valley. He used to live in San Francisco. So he had a familiarity with what all that meant. He knew it wasn't as simple as like, we should do a fund or we should do some of the other things that various people had suggested. What he recognized was whatever we do, Georgia Tech has to be at the center of it. So he reached out to the president of Georgia Tech at the time, Bud Peterson. Mm -hmm. And then the two of them reached out to me. The genesis of Engage was a lot like any startup, right? The three of us got together. Three, three people in a room. Three people in a room. I love that period. We basically went through all the brainstorming of what, what would accomplish this, what should be. And we were all willing to think differently. We didn't just try to say, oh, we should replicate what this city did or what this other venture firm did. And what we realized was like any startup, we should go do some customer discovery. And we went and talked to the other CEOs. And I think some of the magic of Engage was, I think the three of us showing up and talking to them was actually the unique pivot point because mm -hmm. you had the CEO of one of the world's leading asset management companies talking about this. So that so those CEOs that may not have understood the venture or the access to capital problem, they believed Marty on that. You had a president of a university that had become known 
and that they were all already talking to about how to become more innovative. And then you had someone who knew the startup ecosystem. So as we did our customer discovery, we heard three things consistently. They wanted access to the startups that were impacting their innovation roadmaps and changing mm -hmm. their markets. Two was they wanted collaborative cross-corporate kind of learning around this innovation. How do mm -hmm. we connect innovators in our companies? With and, then, and then third, they wanted to help make Atlanta a leading tech hub. So when we formed Engage, we said, look, what's needed is a program that drives that connectivity. We understood the real missing ingredient. Yes, capital is missing, but capital will come. What we really need to do is drive connectivity. The business model is a fund. We're going to run an accelerator program. We want you to invest in this fund. Mm -hmm. We're going to run two cohorts a year. And our big um, audacious ask was you as the CEOs have to be on the board and we want the executives from across your company to be actively involved in this. We call them quarterbacks, but we engaged, we had point people on each of these companies. And, and so that ask actually turned out to be really what got them excited. That's what they wanted. They wanted that connectivity. Georgia Tech is the administrative program, which just means we use the the pieces of ATDC and everything else to rebuild an accelerator. But instead of the kind of product market fit stage, we built a program around go to market and around helping connect with these enterprise customers. So what we do now, the part that nobody sees is we have a bunch of activities where we work with the big companies to understand what their innovation needs and goals and roadmaps look like. These wind up looking like CB Insight studies of different marketplaces. Mm, sure. And we build databases as part of that. Here's the startups impacting that space. And then we go out and source those startups to join these cohorts twice a year. We invest in each of those companies. They go through an accelerator style program, but it's a little bit more around the go to market. And we wind up to date. We've had, I think, 85 contracts between those big companies and startups. So it's working, but it's a lot more than just connecting the startups with the big companies. And so I think what we did different is instead of woe is us, come help us. Um, we recognized that everybody had a need in this equation. The big companies had a need for innovation, but the startups had a need for that connectivity. And we built a platform that wasn't about charity. We built a platform that was about helping all of those entities succeed. And we did something that I think is, you could probably only pull off in Atlanta. I'm not sure anywhere else you could get large companies from such diverse industries to come together and collaborate. I, I used to joke in the early days when we would have our board meetings, I would tell other people, I'd say, look, tell me anywhere else in the country where 10 or 11 Fortune 1000 CEOs got in a room together uh, today <laughs> to talk about startup and innovation activity. That's what we did. And we did that oh. here in Atlanta. The other risk is, do you end up really running a program that is essentially startup washing. They want to seem innovative and they want to seem connected to startups. And so if they could write some checks and be around startups in some way, that would be enough and that you wouldn't probably actually yield the results that you want to yield. I think two things prevented that. One is um, I can't overstate essentially all of those companies were the founders, all those CEOs were the founders of Engage. So it's, it's Engage is more like a program. It's a partnership between all of us. And these guys really understand much more than we in the startup world. We look at them and say, hey, big, dumb companies, they don't understand innovation. <laughs> what we don't understand is how hard it is for them. They have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. They're in regulated industries. We like to say, move fast, yeah, and, right. you know, break things. If you're Delta Airlines, you can't you know, move fast and break yeah, things. Definitely don't break things. Those CEOs had a really visionary view of this, and they, they're really passionate about trying to build what some of them would call their entrepreneurial muscle or change their entrepreneurial culture. And so this became a platform and a partnership and it was like their innovation club where they made a decision to do it together. So I think the first thing we got right was we had not just CEO involvement, but this was their vision too. The companies had money in it so that they had a stake in these startups. And then the second thing I think we got right 
is that it's not window dressing. We didn't just call them up and say, send us a PowerPoint list of what your strategy is. They would all look the same, right? right? It would say, we care about customer experience. We care (laughs) about whatever. But we actually dug in and figured out what was really happening in their markets. The selection process for Engage includes the corporate partners. So they help choose the startups that get accepted. So by the time they're accepted, we already know that they care about what that startup is doing. I think what we did well is we built this collaborative innovation platform Mm -hmm. where everybody was doing it together. It wasn't just us serving one company and then serving the other. It was collaborative. And that's what I think made all the difference. So what's the interplay between Engage and TechSquare Ventures then? We're the fund manager for both funds. There's only one firm, TechSquare Ventures, that manages both funds. So companies can go in both directions, right? So Engage makes smaller programmatic investments. On purpose, it doesn't compete with the ecosystem, the venture ecosystem. And TechSquare Ventures tends to write you know, larger checks and lead or be an active co-investor in these deals. One doesn't preclude the other. Companies that come through Engage, just like if they went through Y Combinator or another program, they still need to raise capital. Sometimes the analogy I use to help people understand it is you can think of revolution ventures and rise of the rest, engage as our rise of the rest. It just gives us such a competitive advantage because we have this access to what's going on in the market. So companies can come through engage and when it's time for them to raise their rounds, the TechSquare Ventures early stage fund can invest in them and vice versa. We have one company in this current cohort of engage, Slip Robotics, which is a company TechSquare Ventures had invested in. And once it you know got far enough along, it applied and was accepted to engage. And now it's part of the engage program as well. The, the advantage that working with these corporate partners and our market insights investment process gives us is not just what's going on in those marketplaces and, and what the future holds, but it's insight into the timing. That's what's really hard about early stage investing. We're not all sitting around wondering if autonomous vehicles is part of our future. What we're trying to figure out is how does that market evolve from today? And that's the really unique insights we get and working so closely with these core partners and that we're able to apply to, to our investment decisions, what we source, what we invest in. It helps us diligence these companies better. And obviously it helps us add more value to the startups once we've invested. In light of that, I'd love it if you could uh, walk through uh, a deal. Give me an example of somebody that was a really good fit for, let's say, TechSquare Ventures. And give, give me some of the background about it, about how you met them, how they got to you, why it was attractive, why that was a good fit. First, I'm going to rewind and talk about maybe one or two of our earliest deals, because I think that shaped who we are today. In fact, earlier today, I was talking about one of them at, at Charlie Paparelli's Angel Lounge. So Pointivo here in Atlanta was one of our, was our first investment. And in Cyprus, here in Atlanta was an, was an early investment. And what was common about both of those was we were there on day one and, and we helped pull the company together. We helped pull that team together and, mm-hmm. and build those companies. And those couple companies, along with a few others, have a really special place in my heart because they took a bet on us before we had any evidence we could deliver on this promise. But also because we were there so early, we saw the whole process and it helped us really define who we would be going forward. In the case of Pointivo, I had met the founder, Beeb. He was finishing his PhD at Georgia Tech. He had gone through NSF's i program. I was asked to come help mentor them. He had built this amazing technology that, and, and a set of algorithms that could take imagery, specifically video, and, and turn it into a very accurate 3D models, large scale built environments. So we looked at that for the construction industry. We looked at it for the roofing industry. 
Fast forward to today, they're a leader in that space. They're the platform that all the drone providers are using when they do things like insurance companies use them to fly over roofs and extract roofing estimates or create reports around those things. And what was fun about those was I think it was a nice transition from being an entrepreneur to an investor because I got to do a little bit of both, right? We were there in very early. Same with Cypress. Brian Mann had a, just an amazing vision, understood what had changed in the development environment. All the testing tools had been built back when you did releases once every three months, not three times an hour. So he had a vision of what that testing for web applications and JavaScript applications should look like. So those were two examples. And I think the takeaway on those would be at the end of the day, you're betting on market opportunity and people. And when it comes to the people, their superpower is their vision. And if you are aligned with them and you believe in that vision, those have been our best investments. I think more recently, the first couple of investments we did out of this fund, I'll give you an example of one, Yesler, which is a marketplace in the building materials builder and lumber marketplace. And that was a market opportunity we would have never known about if we weren't working with Georgia Pacific okay. as part of Engage. Huh. And so we had already studied this building material space. We already understood that everyone was trying to figure out how these marketplaces would emerge. And we were able to basically spot the characteristics of the team that was most likely to win. We were lucky to find Yesler and then TechCore Ventures led that their seed round. And now we're working with them to all the challenges of a marketplace. How do you get the initial mm-hmm. kernel of supply and demand to get things rolling? But we're doing that with an unusual competitive advantage of having the the market insights and knowledge and you know help from the experts at Georgia Pacific. Help somebody um, self-identify their company as something that would be suitable for you, something that you would find attractive. And then tell me how they... Like, how would you want them to get to you? Our sweet spot seed, but that's a plus or minus, oh, so right? All t- the way from 10 to $20 million checks now, oh, nowadays. Yeah, our check sizes are half a million to 3 million initial okay. check sizes. So it's day zero through maybe early series A, but, but sweet seeds are sweet spot and enterprise and marketplace technology companies. And in general, as you probably figured out, we get excited about the companies we think we can help accelerate their go-to-market. So that generally means, does our network and our knowledge help with that? We're comfortable with recurring and transactional revenue business models. We're not comfortable with business models that aren't one of those or SaaS. And we really dig in on the market opportunity, the people, the founder and their vision. And then obviously, can we help? Every VC I talk to, I ask this question, so you're going to get it. You do some research and you find out about a really compelling market opportunity that maybe a lot of people don't have visibility into. You research the kind of corporate structure and strategy and approach you'd like to have. You go searching for that kind of company. You find one that is that's going to do it. And you just know that this is going to be a, a huge success. And that founder is the worst. You wouldn't want to spend time with them. You wouldn't really want to have them represent you if you didn't have to. What do you do in that case? How do you handle that? Do you you hold your nose and do the deal because you're going to make money for LPs and see if there's fallout and deal with it later? Or how do you work through that yourself personally? Yeah, boy, what a a tough question, especially one to be on record for. This might be a weakness for me. I think it naturally takes care of itself. If someone's just truly a jerk, I don't think you get to the point where you invest. So no, we, you know, we wouldn't just invest in, in a jerk, but what, what, what you're really looking for is alignment. And that alignment means a shared vision. And, and I think not too many people that by the time we get to know them or they know me, they, they probably know who I am. Our core values as a firm are service and stewardship. They know that we care about not just winning, but winning the right way. So we're probably going to filter out jerks, but not, not necessarily because they're not going to be my friend. Our investors aren't given us their money to make friends, but more because that leads to a lack of alignment. And and you have to be able to work together. You have to build that alignment. And that alignment gets built on trust. 
And if you can't trust someone, and by the way, that trust might not be there, not just not because the entrepreneur, it, it could be my fault. It could be our fault too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is you look for that alignment and you look for that trust. If we're not aligned and that's going to come out if they're a jerk, we're clearly not going to be aligned. If they're a jerk, we probably think they're a jerk because if we're violently disagreeing and we're not making any progress in how we're disagreeing. I think there's an idea in venture though, that the underlying value is making money often. I mean, I'm saying everybody's like that, but it, that's often the case. Like the core. That's our underlying. Yeah, that's our underlying. And, there's no doubt. That's our. And so if someone doesn't align on other values, eh, not a big deal. As long as I think they can make me money. Yeah. You know, I think it's a great question and I'm not answering for the venture industry. I'm answering for myself right now. Deal flow has not been our problem. Um, so I don't have to worry about, gosh, am I going to regret this because it goes on to be a success because I'll I'll go find one that's going to be a success that we are aligned with. Because by the way, it might be a success, but especially as a seed investor, if if you start out the relationship with friction, you're probably going to wind up on the losing end of it at the end of that movie, even if it's a success. So I want to work with entrepreneurs I'm aligned with. And you know, that, that means I respect them. I trust them. Any good entrepreneur has some degree of a chip on their shoulder. So there's probably not an entrepreneur out there that somebody doesn't think is a jerk, but uh, yeah. So I, I think of it more from a perspective of alignment. All startups, lots of startups, depends on obviously what their business model is, have the idea that landing a Fortune 100 or something company as a client would be an amazing thing. Can you talk a little bit about the extent to which that is an amazing thing? Give some people the ability to actually evaluate the true possibilities of it to begin with, whether that's even something they should actually be putting in the hopper as something they think they can make happen. And then what are the biggest mistakes you see? I I have seen startups where a great corporate relationship pilot that they made an ultimate thing basically ran the company in the ground because it took three years. And by the time anything came out of it, they, they didn't have the runway. What are the biggest kinds of mistakes? What should people be considering? Yeah, such a good question. I think that's also part of the value of the platform we're talking about. Part of, you know, as much coaching as we give the startups, we give the big companies as well. Look, I think the, the first thing is once you understand your vision, your go-to-market strategy, who your target customers are, how do those large enterprises fit into that vision? Because you're right. they can quickly take you off course. And you're looking for, for really early stage startups, you're looking for not just the logo, you're looking for a successful starting point. To use kind of your example, we spend a lot of time saying, hey, let's define an initial successful pilot. But hey, startup, you have to realize this has to lead to whatever their end goal is. And that's the journey you're starting on. So you look for those opportunities where the pilot leads to the type of business opportunity and the scale is going to work and not be overwhelming. And the, the second thing I would say is startups actually tend to worry about all the wrong things. They're going to steal my idea. There's all this scary language in the agreement, but really it, it comes down to, can you solve that problem? And is that the problem you want to be solving? Is it going to take you off course? If it's going to take you off course, we generally tell them, Hey, you're not ready yet. Let's not go down that path just yet. Or we talk to the big company and say, look, the right starting point is here. And if you're trying to get here, this is what you need to be able to commit to. The best entrepreneurs kind of realize that. And I think the stories of big companies killing early stage companies in the past, I think there were a lot of executives and big companies that were just so trained to getting every ounce of blood out of every relationship they could. (laughs) I think that's changed. I think big companies understand what innovation means now. And not that you don't run across that. And in fact, the business unit champion is usually helping you get through procurement and all these other hurdles that are tough. But yeah, it's the same as with the investors about alignment and relationship, but you're exactly right. The question is, why do you want that as a customer? And for most of the startups that we work with, those relationships can be transformative, not just because of the logo and the credibility it gives you, but because it gives you access to get to 
a certain market or a certain scale faster. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when there's a mismatch between what would be an ideal starting point for your scale and size startup and what the big company means is you can say yes in a different way. You can say, okay, we're going to do that in three phases. And here's what phase one is. And we need you to say yes to phase one. And here's what it's going to look like. And as long as they understand what the journey is to get to that end point, most of the time that works. Again, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, we have this impression that these are big, dumb companies. These companies lead their industries because they're led by the smartest people in their industries. These are not big, dumb companies, and these are not dumb people. So it really comes down to putting in place an implementation plan that works for everybody. And if it doesn't, yes, you should not do it. You should wait. You mentioned earlier that you were at a point in your career once where you felt that you were over your head, having been given more opportunities than you even necessarily knew what to do with, although nobody around you knew that, I'm sure. And all the way up until you're an executive at a publicly traded company, even feeling a little bit like that, younger than you ought to be. We're in the midst of a bit of a national reckoning around things like diversity, around a whole vast swath of people that never get the opportunity to be over their heads. They get the opportunity to be put into a pool where they're then evaluated for the best person. When the truth is, basically all of startup world forever has been built on giving opportunities to people that they don't deserve, that they're not qualified for, but giving them the opportunity to succeed. How do you think about that now? And how do you think about what we're supposed to do about that? Great question. And I think you're exactly right. So I I think about it in a couple of ways. So one, back to your comments about Atlanta and the Southeast in general, you can't tackle diversity nationally without tackling it in the South. The, The lack of diversity in the tech community, it is not just a moral imperative. It's like, we have to do this or we won't be a leading tech hub. We won't be a leading tech hub if we managed to disenfranchise half of our talent base. So first of all, I think that this is a moment for the Southeast and we have to get better at that. When I think about our role, Tech Square Ventures role, certainly I'm not smart enough to know what the answer is for, for the larger systemic problems. But what I do know is we have a platform that was built to solve something that all entrepreneurs need, which is access. It's access to those customers and markets. And so I think what we have been doing since we started TechScore Ventures is is using that platform for a force of good. You see that in our investments that we did even before, right? There was this recent focus. We've got diverse founders. I think something north of 20% of our founders are female or black, but we don't really think of it that way. And we never thought of that as statistic. We were just finding the best companies. And I think our process, our proactive process, rather than being reactive to what comes to us in the network, number one, help bridge that gap. Number two, I think that when you talk about what I hear from those entrepreneurs and our friends is that what they really lack is that connectivity and that access and that and that shot. And what we lack is talent and people solving the problems we want to solve. So I think a big part of this equation is bringing not just the people together, but actually bringing those would-be brilliant entrepreneurs together with the problems that our particular network cares about. Mm -hmm. For example, one of our most successful investments, we were the first investor in the Mom Project, came through our Engage program. And what they're doing is Mom Project and Allison Robinson saw a need to connect moms that have been out of the workforce back with new opportunities. We saw our big corporate partners get excited about accessing a higher level of talent with some degree of flexibility. Mm -hmm. We've invested in companies like Inclusively, which is doing the same thing for disabled workers and companies like Canaries. So we've actually also seen a business opportunity in the companies that are helping bridge and address these problems. But it's a great question. I hope that Atlanta rises to this opportunity and views this as an op- and, and views this as an opportunity. And it's about everything we've already talked about. But the problem is connectivity and the problem is access to markets and customers. 
we have the platform, Atlanta has the platform, Text for Ventures has the platform to help accelerate some of that connectivity. And you already see it happening. When I go on Georgia Tech's campus, every fall I teach a, an entrepreneurial finance class, and I already see the students taking that class, that group becoming more and more diverse. I'm hopeful that will be one of the things that the South and the Southeast is known for leading. I, I just know what we can do with our platform. And I know we need amazing, talented people solving you know, these problems. And, and so hopefully they find their way to us. The last question, you and I are about the same age. From what I know of you, you probably accomplished more than you maybe would have thought you would, maybe more than you would have planned to even. When people think about what you've done so far and where you think you're headed through the rest of your career, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want that legacy to be? There is not an entrepreneur's first choice for early stage capital venture firm in the Southeast. And I hope that's what we're known for. I hope that people look back and say, that's what they built. And again, that's why the branding is not around me. So I don't necessarily care if they remember me, but I care that TechSquare Ventures is still here. It's that entrepreneur's first choice for capital. All the venture firms that everyone else nationally knows, I hope we get mentioned in the same breath for early stage capital. And somebody says, hey, that one's right there in Atlanta, in the Southeast. That's probably the most important thing I care about for my legacy is that that I build an enduring venture firm, not just Blake has a venture capital career, but that TechSquare Ventures continues to go. And then for a personal legacy, I guess a couple things. Faith is a, a big part of my life. I hope that the way that we've done this and the way that we build this. I say sometimes I'd rather us have a reputation than a brand. And so I hope we have a reputation for being an ambassador for those core values I mentioned, the service and stewardship, and people see us and think of us uh, in that light. And certainly growing up in Jamestown, North Carolina, I never imagined I'd be doing this. I never, certainly never imagined I'd be partnered with CEOs of the world's largest companies. I never imagined that we would have 55 companies that we've invested in and some of the you know, most successful startups and these amazing founders that I get to work with. That's the privilege. We get to work with all these amazing people. I, I hope my legacy isn't as much about what Blake did, but more about, wow, look at all those dots that TechSquare Ventures and Blake were connected to and that we played a small role in building that connectivity, which is, I think, what it's going to take both for Atlanta to be the leading tech hub and obviously for TechSquare Ventures to be that entrepreneur's first choice for capital in the Southeast.